What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 37 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is an honor to sit down and spend some time with you while you're on your leadership journey, while you're seeking to be the leader that you were created to be in the space and the place that God put you. Well, today's been a day that I have been looking forward to for so long. We recorded this podcast last summer. We got to sit down with the infamous Ravi Zacharias. I don't know of anybody that is out there in the world today that's articulating the Christian belief better than Ravi. Through a mutual friend, we were able to have lunch a few years ago, and the lunch was amazing. And I got to ask so many questions and pick his brain on so many things. And at the end of the lunch, I felt so selfish because I was trying to regurgitate his answers to everyone and felt like I came up woefully short. Well, today we won't come up short because today you get to listen in. So today of all days, as we wrap up 2018 and we get ready to kick off 2019, I can't think of anyone better to do it with than Ravi Zacharias. So I hope you'll pull up a chair. I hope you'll listen in to my time with Ravi. Well, Ravi, thank you so much for joining us today on Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. Nice to be with you, Mike. Thank you very much indeed. Well, you are you are known by so many, and I think as I watch you on stages and listen, I listen daily to your podcast and all the things that you put out, and and you see somebody who is who is so kind but yet confident in their beliefs. Was that always true of you? Did you look at yourself in a mirror as a teenager and see lots of promise in your future? (laughs) I saw lots of reason to be despondent, Mike, and I'm not just making that up. And that's why my conversion, too, was, uh, as you know, on a bed of suicide when I was 17. I literally blundered into my first speaking engagement. I was asked to speak at the first Asian Youth Congress in uh, Hyderabad, India, in 65, when I was 19, two years after my conversion. And the only reason I was even asked was the gentleman, the young boy who was to speak, uh, was focusing on his exams and couldn't come. So I was asked to take his place. And after that first message, it's almost as though God had in mind to show me what Mm. he had in mind for me. So, But where we are today is very different to where you even envision. My goal was really to do evangelism, but I didn't realize it would be in the hotbeds of skepticism and resistance and counter-perspectives and all of that. So to answer your question, no, never saw it and still find it hard to believe. I see myself as a person literally born in a tiny little street in Chennai, India, then grew up in Delhi, and God saw something that nobody else did, and he's given me the privilege of speaking across the globe 
in tough situations with great response. And uh, it's all God's doing and uh, very little, uh, nothing really of, of human ability here. It's the grace of God. When, when you hear the words, and I was reading your testimony, when, when you hear the words out of John 14, 19, because I live, you will also live. What do those words mean to you? Well, as you know, I had, uh, you know, I, for years, actually, Mike, I couldn't talk about it, uh, especially when my parents were still alive. Uh, it was pretty, uh, I, I, it's, uh, India is a culture where shame is a very serious thing, and I didn't want to shame my parents. But uh, once I wrote the book and got a little more accustomed to answering those questions, uh, I was I had attempted to take my life by poisoning my system. And so there I was with my body dehydrated, lying in bed, unable to even move any limb when the Bible was brought to me. Mm. But as the verse was read to me, because I live, you also shall live. And of all things, Jesus was talking to Thomas the first one to take the gospel to India, and he stepped onto the soil in India in the southern state of Kerala, which really is the home state of my father. Wow. It's the home state of great Indian philosophers and priests. So uh, I, my prayer was, you know, I really don't know what it means to live. I don't didn't want to live, but if you can give me something to live for and the meaning of life, I will leave no stone unturned in my pursuit of truth. So to me, it meant literally the contrast between not even wanting to breathe and then to the delight of breathing with a real purpose for life. Wow. Do you see, as you look back on your journey, do you see God's hand at work even before that situation in the hospital? I would have to say so, because the gentleman who brought the Bible to me, I had already met uh, in Youth for Christ meetings. I I had gotten to know him briefly. Uh, He was a musician, the Delhi Youth for Christ director. I'd made some friends. And had had he just come in as sort of a, a complete stranger, in many ways he was still relatively unknown, but had he come in as a complete stranger, I think I would have said to myself, "What? What am I? Who am I dealing with here?" But that preparation and my uh, sisters getting interested in the gospel, uh, the, the 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 bedrock was being set. At which point the God God was going to plant the, me in that solid foundation. Uh, and then I think prior to that, uh, the change that uh, was going to take place. I lived for sports. That's all I wanted to do and accomplish in my life, mainly cricket or tennis. And yet all of a sudden, after my conversion, had very little time for either. Those were the things I lived for, for from 4 p.m. onwards every day, either on the tennis court or on the cricket pitch. That was my reason for being. And then after my conversion, my coming to Christ, uh, seeking higher things, seeking more Think things of the spirit. Yeah, I loved cricket. I loved tennis, but had very little time left for it. And the transformation my father saw in me was critical for him realizing what had happened to me. Wow. So they give you the Bible, you get the Bible in the hospital, you begin to read it. Is it something that you just had a yearning and a hunger to know more about it? Is that where your passion for 
knowing more and, and, and we would say defending the faith and understanding your faith? Did all of that begin to boil up in you pretty early in your years? In many, in many ways, it came into a strange mix of total ignorance. Even though hmm. I was born into a nominal Christian home, if you'd asked me to quote one verse, I couldn't quote it for you. I didn't have a Bible. I, I, I think there was a family Bible in the house, but I never opened it. Um, all of my friends were either Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, or Sikh. I didn't have a single Christian friend. And so I used to attend all of the Hindu festivals, the Ramnavami, and uh, uh, go to see all of the drama and the plays of uh, of the Gita and so forth, which were fascinating plays to go to. Uh, but I always saw it as sort of a sort of a cultural expression of uh, uh, being good and being nice. Uh, I never ever wondered about the truthfulness of these stories and what it meant for life. All of a sudden. When you're dying and you realize you are literally hanging on by a slender thread, you could be breathing your last at your own hands. And here you're reading about someone who says he's the way, the truth, mm. and the life. And uh, he is talking to, uh, uh, to, the, to the apostle Thomas in that conversation about whom I knew nothing except that he was asking the questions and Jesus was answering him and then coming to, uh, because I live, you also shall live. It couldn't have been more pertinent mm. than those verses. I knew, did not know what the way was. I did not know what the truth was. I did not know what life was. And then to see that he was the author and the giver of life, it's like something that had never come into my mind as a solid ground on which to build for the future was suddenly opened up before me. And all I did was, Jesus, if you are who you claim to be, uh, I will leave no stone unturned in pursuit of truth. So it came into a mix of a messed up life that had much more of Eastern religion in it than uh, the true Christian faith. So when you began that journey there as a 17-year-old young man, how in the world did you end up coming to the States and and beginning the trek that you're on now with RZIM? Yeah, I think that is entirely the Grand Weaver, uh, the book that mm-hmm. I, one of the books that I wrote, how God uh, fashions you through your hurts and pains and your opportunities, how he uh, holds the threads uh, and if you will respond, the design is soon visible. When I was uh, 20 years old, uh, my father held a very high position in the Indian government. He was a deputy secretary in the home ministry. And um, he was a friend of uh, the Canadian ambassador to India. His name was Roland Michener. Roland Michener later on became Canada's governor general. He was a very distinguished man. Happened to meet my dad and uh, offered... My dad offered my dad the opportunity for uh, uh, the whole family to move to uh, to Canada. And uh, I thought to myself, oh, my word, this would be incredible. I was halfway through my university education, but that moment came. So my 22-year-old brother and I left and moved to Toronto. I had gone there to study business, especially in the hospitality industry, which was beginning to burgeon in India. And uh, then as I was working uh, at nights, I started to attend theological lectures during the day. Uh, You know, it was just so innocent 
uh, you know, I've got two hours in the afternoon. I'll go and take the course in systematic theology, biblical studies, New Testament studies. Went to, the, to a seminary there, paid my way just for the interest of the gospel. And God shaped and molded my life. Mm. And next thing I knew, I'd given up my career, my job, and was in full-time theological studies, taken on then by the Christian and Missionary Alliance to become a full-time evangelist with them in 1972, when I was 26 years old. But as I was traveling, preaching, and then Dr. Billy Graham asked me to speak for him in 1983 and 86 and 2000, and uh, uh, I did the Amsterdam conferences, and I noticed at that point all of the evangelism was being done towards what you would call the unhappy pagan. Very few were reaching out to the happy pagan. And I felt <laughs> the Lord speaking to me that we, the, the, those, the, the so-called happy pagan is actually more lost because he doesn't know it. And uh, how do we reach the skeptic? Uh, that's when uh, the pursuit to RZIM began. And now we are in our uh, 34th year, a staff of uh, 90 full-time speakers, mm. nearly 250 placed in uh, team, teammates placed in 15 countries. And it's been a dream journey, not without its hazards, but uh, certainly uh, it's been something way beyond what I ever expected. From 1972, 73 years, um, coming to know Christ during those years, 1983, beginning with Billy Graham. As you look back at that, and I know you spend so much of your time on college campuses, and I listen to a lot of the, the Q&A that you do with students. Have students' questions changed that happy pagan? That's a great way to say that. That happy pagan, have their questions changed through the years? Or has there been sort of a universal thread that you've noticed running through all the years you've been on the road? If you'd asked me this question seven, eight years ago, Mike, I would have said, no, they're the same questions, faith and science, origin, uh, morality, meaning, and all of that. But now the questions are much more culturally driven, values driven, mm. uh, freedom driven, sexuality driven, identity driven. Uh, we are in a. We are in the midst of a cultural chaos. I have never seen such chaos in America as I am seeing now. Politically, we are divided. Spiritually, we are divided. Uh, the hate that is vented forth by those who oppose any view is something I would never have envisioned that I would see in 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 a land such as this where the Christian faith has been the bequest for so long. The questions have changed, Mike. Yeah, you get the old uh, uh, chestnuts always coming up in terms of what about uh, uh, the, the age of the earth and Genesis 1 to 3 and all of that. Yet that comes. But much more than that, it is a question of uh, identity, uh, who you really are, whether it's sexually defined or ethnically divide, defined or culturally defined, uh, you are walking through a minefield right now. One wrong word, and you're finished in the public eye. Mm. Uh, then you've got this whole uh, thing called the web. It's rightly called the web. It entangles, mm. snares, and the people who have no right to be heard are heard. People who you know nothing about pontificate on profound issues. People can slander, uh, destroy, 
say whatever they wish to say, and there's always someone who's willing to latch onto it. So the questions have changed. Mm. Uh, my teammates uh, uh, are very cautious in how we answer, but the old uh, struggles remain, Mike. The struggle of meaning, why am I here? What is my purpose in life? People that are kids that are 12, 13, 14 year olds, those are the questions they're asking. Then there's issues of pornography. How do I break the stranglehold of pornography? It's amazing the number of young men who will walk forward when you speak. I don't speak specifically on that subject, uh, but I do if I use an illustration or something. Uh, the and, and young business people, businessmen will come at them. Leaders will come and say, this thing has ruined my marriage. It's ruined my, my life. It's like an addiction. Uh, so the issues of the time are much more in what is available in the mass media and what is crippling uh, in terms of societal uh, moral struggles. So as you encounter these students, and I think hate is a good word, the vitriol that you probably, the questions are probably began with, as you begin to present who Jesus really is, and how he really feels, not what media is portrayed, not what they may thought scripture taught. As you begin to do that, do you see some of the defenses coming down with those same students? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Mike. Absolutely. Otherwise, it'll be very disheartening. Mm. Uh, first of all, it shows to you the hunger in the crowds that are coming. You know, University of Florida, which is quite liberal, there were over 7,000 out on a weeknight. Michigan State, 9,000. We are literally speaking to thousands of students. When I did the Yale Forum, I thought we just had a packed audience in front of us. Within days, over 100,000 had logged on mm. and listened to that lecture and the Q&A. Uh, wherever we go, you get off at Rio de Janeiro or you get off in plane in Bangkok or you're in Taipei, or you're Hong Kong, or Singapore, or Delhi, or Mumbai, it's very difficult to even go through an airport now without somebody coming up to you and saying, hey, I watched your YouTube, I watched your uh, your lecture at such and such a place. And it always ends with words like, you've changed my life, you've changed mm -hmm. my life. Uh, it's uh, my, my colleagues who travel with me just put their arm around me when they hear such things, and I, it never ceases to uh, keep us humble before God because we know full well we don't change people's Amen. lives because if we do, somebody else will change it back. It's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction. So the truths we are presenting, we trust are the truths God wants us to present and God uses because the transformed heart is a miracle and we are not the authors of miracles. Uh, God is. So I, I just think uh, what what is happening and the crowds we are seeing and the responses we are seeing from every worldview, Mike, every, you name the worldview, and we have it, uh, they are sitting around a table or sitting at a university and talking to you. Uh, I have heard, uh, I have never verified, but even if it's close to the truth, when we were in Jordan recently, we were having lunch with a group of Lebanese pastors. And of course, they are inundated with refugees from Syria and Iraq in Jordan and Lebanon. They said the fastest growing church in the world, the second fastest growing church in the world today is in Iran. 
Uh, wow. Number one is China. Number two is Iran. So even if it's the seventh, eighth, ninth, or tenth, you know, who would have ever thought that a nation that had the deliberate journey to turn its back upon the Christian faith and persecute people would see that its youth are turning to Jesus today in large numbers? What would you say, and we we talked a little bit before we went on air, what would you say to a leader and they say, man, I am, I'm at a company, I'm a, I'm a director, I'm a, I'm a leader at the company or a business or a school, and I just don't feel confident. People know I go to church and that's enough. What would you say to them to encourage them, Ravi, about standing, not, not just standing up for their faith, but living out that faith they claim to profess? What would you say to them? Well, you know, it's fascinating, Mike, to see how uh, CEOs or how important leaders face this question. I was in San Francisco some time ago, and they gave us two or three views on this. The CEO of one of those large companies, uh, Pat Jolsinger is his name, uh, well-known in the Bay Area, heading up one of the major uh, information technology companies. I had, uh, along with my colleague, had dinner with him very recently, too. He made it very plain that for him, his employees, thousands of them all over the world, needed to know where he was coming from, that uh, he's written a book about his faith. He said, everyone knows that I follow Jesus Christ, that this is the foundational uh, view of life that I have because of Jesus as my Savior, keeps it very upfront, not intimidating, very humbly stated, and uh, Everyone in his company knows what he stands for. Mm. Another person from one of the infotech companies said, you know, in my company, it's much harder to do that. He said, so I work behind the scenes. I support uh, the those who are in the uh, main line of this uh, company, the computer guys and gals and so on. And I support them. I help them. I will pray with them. But they are the ones who meet for Bible studies regularly once a week and so on. So for him, a role behind the scenes, for Pat, the role right up center. I think, you know, when the Bible says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin, when the book Mm -hmm. of Romans tells us that, I think we need to seek God's conviction on this. What is it he wants me to do here? If I come right out and go through it as like a bull in a china shop, will I destroy the witness or will people be thrilled? On the other hand, Somewhat might say, you know, yeah, God has called me to sire quietly, but uh, acknowledge the fact that this is who I am. If you have any questions, I'm happy to answer it in private uh, conversation one-on-one. It's the same sitting next to a person in a plane. In some instances, you go right in like I did in the last flight back, the lady sitting next to me. What do you do? She said, because I was reading a book and she, I told her, she said, oh my, she said, did you ever know Billy Graham? And we started talking. Now, obviously, she knew about who Billy Graham was and talked about uh, Christianity in general terms, but it opened up very naturally for us. With others, it's it's a winding path. Still others, they'll reach out, shake hands, and say, I I follow the same Lord that Mm -hmm. you do. So you have to be very sensitive and very careful as a listener There were some to whom Jesus did not disclose himself because they were not yet ready. Mm. There were others to whom he said, go and tell and show what I have done in your life. 
So I think there's a timing for every life. And uh, so long as we are honest before God and willing to do what he asks us to do, that's the way I think I would handle it. And I think I think one of the things that has endeared you through the years to so many is the kindness, even on a college campus, when the the, the question's not directed in the most kind manner, in the most uplifting manner, your response back to them is never argumentative. It is very kind and gentle. Is that part of your personality or is that something you have learned and have learned to say, I'm not going to get anywhere by arguing with them. Tell me how that's been developed through the years. It's a little bit of both. And it's a good question. I often wonder about it myself. Certainly it's not a manufactured approach. It has come very naturally. This is who I am because most of my friends around me in India, when I came to know the Lord, were from a completely different worldview. You had to be very careful on how you came through. Were you judging them? Were you condemning them? Were you implying that they were hellbound? How do you how do you get the gospel message with such stark reality to truly uh, be uh, meaningful uh, within the context of uh, those who do not believe it without compromising the truth? So it's a combination of co- conviction and compassion. That's mm. the first thing. But the second well, thing good. is this, as I tell my team, uh, you have to Uh, Remember, you're not answering a question, you're answering a questioner. The questioner who is asking has a reason for those questions. And you have to, in a metaphorical sense, put your arm around them while you are answering them. If you don't put your arm around them while you're answering them, they are going to find a reason to fight you. We're not there for a fight. Oftentimes, I'll begin by saying, you know, I'm not coming to change your mind on anything. But I believe in somebody who can change your mind. And that's the one I present. He's the one that I preach and speak and present to you. So it's a case of uh, really not uh, being uh, uh, forcing it down the throat of anybody. Uh, I've had people, you know, here, here it is. You've got content. Uh, you've got a message and you've got a method. They have to be in alignment. If the method violates the message, the message is defeated. If the message is not done with the proper method, you don't really get it across. So I, I have a grid in my mind for four points, identification, translation, persuasion, justification. I must identify with the audience. Translation, it must be in an idiom that they ultimately comprehend. Persuasion, what in my talk is going to be persuasive to them? And then justification, why is what I'm saying true and has to be presented as truth? So identification, translation, persuasion, justification, that's in my mind in every talk, Mm. every talk. And before I go onto the platform, I put that grid on there and say, does it meet the demands of these four things? Mm. Uh, so the gentleness with respect, that's what Peter says. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you, but to do so with gentleness and respect uh, so that those who speak ill of you and so on will ultimately uh, be put, uh, put to shame. They will see that what they have criticized you for is wrong. 
Do you think if we could go back to the times of Christ when he was walking those roads and he was getting questions and he was getting pulled on? I know we just finished a series through the book of, we did a series through the book of Mark and a series through the book of John for years. I mean, it took three years to get through that. And it was interesting to note, he never got mad at an unbeliever who questioned. He always got frustrated with the religious leaders who would not leave things alone. Do you think if we could go back and see the times of Christ and to watch his interactions with people, it was that same kindness that yeah. that the pagans felt even then? Yes, I think so. I think the authority with which he spoke and the grace with which he addressed. I mean, I was talking at uh, a church in Hilton Head over the weekend. You just take three illustrations. You take the woman with the uh, the, uh, the Samaritan woman. When your home has been shattered five times, it's very difficult for you to have any sense of self-confidence, any sense of self-worth. Basically, your life is broken and you've been used by men and your ethnicity is uh, considered a pejorative term. All Everything was wrong with her life. And yet our Lord gently pulled down any wall of straw mm. and then made her the first evangelist to the Samaritans. Then there was the woman with the alabaster ointment. I suspect she got it from her ill-gotten way of selling herself, precious nard. And uh, he never even asked her where she got it. You know, he never even asked her that. All he said was, she's done this for me. Wow. She was a woman in great debt, and she now realizes what it means to be forgiven. And then he paid her the greatest compliment that wherever the gospel is to be preached, there would also this be told of what she had done. And then with the woman taken in adultery, you know, uh, I know uh, critics well, like to question the passage, but there it is. In, in, uh, the marvelous thing is uh, not the men, the men involved were not there. Once again, a cultural conundrum. And yet all he does is whatever he wrote on the ground, uh, whether it was the law, whether it was grace, what it was, and he just said, you know, which of you guys doesn't have any sin, you go ahead, you start. Mm. And uh, that all of a sudden, the grace and the truth of Christ comes through. Uh, even the tough ones, how he handled them, you know, uh, he was tough on Peter, but very gentle with him when Peter needed it the most. Mm. After the resurrection, it was not good enough for him to tell the women to go and tell the disciples. He said, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Wow. Uh, just the beauty of uh, the particularity of a person, never lost in the vastness of uh, the human uh, scene. Uh, on the cross... Uh, bringing redemption for humankind. And then he pauses to ask the young man to make sure he took care of his mother. Uh, here, the drama of our redemption is unfolding, and he has uh, his mother in mind to make sure that she would be taken care of. I think the Lord is the best example of how to reach these torn Amen. cities of ours and not to forget the individual in the process. Do, do you think that the church is doing a good job reflecting? what Christ looks like across, we'll, we'll take the United States across America. Is the church doing a good job, you believe, to uh, a, uh, a happy pagan public? 
which is a great way to say it, of what Jesus, if he were here, what he would look like and love like? I think we've got a mixed uh, mixed reality here, uh, Mike. I've been in some remarkable churches where you say, wow, if I lived here, this is where I would go or take my family where they are, where they've got just the right balance of music and the word, where they've got the depth of exposition, where they've got a caring community, where their people are affirmed, where they've got a good cross-cultural mix in their audience, uh, where you've got uh, a pastoral team that is both specialized but well-connected, that's caring for the needs of uh, those who may need compassion and the poor, all that balance that is there. There are several churches like that, but if I were to say, uh, is it a vast majority? I can't honestly say that. Uh, I, you know, some of the churches are, I'm sure, for example, when you talk about just going through Mark and uh, John over, over two years, my word, you know, that's a feast for a, for a mm. congregation. You know, that's the way it needs to be. It's the way people like Spurgeon and G. Campbell Morgan and F.B. Mayer and the others fed their congregation. That means you are taking them into the scriptures, uh, for thy word is truth, and uh, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That alone tells me enough that the word is central to what the people are receiving. And if you ever, the, the, the many of the mainline churches died in the vine because they lost the scriptures. Mm. It's like the time of Josiah. The, they lost the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Think of many of the mainline places or denominations. What's happened to them? You know, once upon a time, they were playing a leading role. Today, when you go, uh, the, the, the pews are scattered and empty, but my goodness, have they ever got all the wealth with the buildings and the tradition that first came into being because of the value of the message, but now exists without the message. And the messengers have lost uh, why it was there in the first place. But those who are setting up places of worship to preach the word, uh, Peter Berger said to me, uh, while we have him, this was the great social analyst of the secular city and so on and so forth, uh, going back to the 80s and in Boston. He said uh, he he misread what was happening. He thought religion was dying on the vine. He didn't realize how the evangelical faith was going to be in such vibrancy and return, uh, where the emotion was being brought into the reality of the message as well. He said he read... He read the future wrong by just looking at what was happening in some of the places where the word had been lost. He did not see the reality of this uh, coming because of the the vibrancy of the evangelical faith. Now, take also a look at uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb, former uh, today professor emeritus at Columbia University, not a follower of Jesus Christ, but in her book, Road Paths to Postmodernity, she has a chapter on John Wesley. Mm. And she said, you know, we in America are very different to Europe. Europe, reason was supreme. For America, reason was not supreme. It was moral reasoning that was supreme. And we owe that to the preaching of Wesley and Whitfield. Uh, Now, when a historian of culture recognizes what framed the ethos, then we had better listen to them carefully. So I think... The churches that are surrendering the message are going to die. You can't just meet 
to tell each other how nice we are and how good we need to be. Uh, we, uh, we need to have our souls uh, that are well. And that comes where the faith is preached and where the Bible is central and well defended to bridge both the head to the heart. Do you believe that the church is going to be, you were talking earlier about the chasms that are even in our country now and how you almost never dreamed you would see the divides that are there among all those issues that you brought up. How, how key do you see the church being to answering all of those things? I think we should not be intimidated. We should not be daunted. We should be humbled by some of our failures. We all fail as individuals and as a corporate structure. We've all failed in many ways, not seeing where culture was headed. And rather than having to act, act retroactively now, we should have been acting proactively. So we need to take a fresh look at what the message is. The message is that the problem is not outside of us. The problem is inside of us. What Malcolm Muggeridge said, the depravity of man is at the same time the most intellectually resisted, even though it is the most empirically verifiable. The most empirically verifiable fact is the depravity of man. And yet we intellectually resist it. Joe Gibbs, who went from the NFL to NASCAR, I was talking to him once when I was speaking to his uh, uh, employees in Florida, and I said to him, uh, uh, Joe, I said, leaving the NFL and moving to uh, NASCAR, uh, what a world of a difference. He said, no, it's not. I said, it isn't? He said, no, they both have one thing in common. It's the depravity of man. <laughs> So they're both depraved. That's I've been right. dealing with the depravity of man in NFL, dealing with depravity of man in car racing. Uh, I forget whether it's in Florida or North Carolina where it was, but that's immaterial. The fact of the matter is the problems that are that we really face, Mike, are not out there. It's in here. And the gospel is the only one that offers the transformed heart, not by my volitional expression, but by the grace and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Here you are, and you we were you were home for a little stretch here while we're on this call, and I know you'll be back on the road here soon. How do you continue to feed your faith after all these years, all these lectures, all the sermons, all these podcasts, all the things you do? What are the disciplines that you have in place, Ravi, to continue to feed your faith? Well, I think there are the three most obvious ones, I think, when Paul asked for the cloak, the books, and the parchments, uh, you need to keep physically fit uh, for this kind of a life. You simply can't goof off. You have to be in the workout room. You have to keep your, your weight manageable so that your health is not hazardous to you. You have to eat properly. You have to uh, exercise properly. You start off with the fact that this is the temple of the living God. I need to take care of it. Otherwise, I can't continue what I'm doing. Then the books. Feed the mind. Vary the reading. Read good good, good writers. Uh, they will always inspire and plant new thoughts in you. But ultimately, it's the parchments. It's the Word of God. So when Paul was in prison, that's what he asked for, the cloak, the books, and the parchment. But now, the most important thing for an itinerant is how does he relate to his family? You see, everybody out there thinks they know you. They really don't. No. The ones who really know you are your family. 
And if your family loves you and respects you, that's where the greatest investment of your life needs to be. Mm. My investment needs to be in my, my spouse, my love. We don't often accomplish it. We stumble, we falter, we fail. You know, Isa, even as I'm talking to you, uh, it's uh, three days after my wife's birthday, and uh, she understood well that I was away. But we saved the day so that just a couple of hours after you and I finish taping this message, I'll be out for dinner with her and enjoying just talking to my wife. She's a great conversationalist, one of the best I've ever known because she's well-read. So people ask me, what do you do for real sense of a hobby or excitement? I say, you're not going to believe this, but when I know on a given day when I wake up, I'm going to have dinner with my wife, that's going to be an exciting day. Wow. Because I'd rather I'd rather have dinner with her than anybody else uh, on the face of the earth. She's just wonderful. They're my kids. I have three kids, five grandkids. You know, I just uh, minutes before I came on this, I was talking to my daughter, planning for Christmas and all of that. To hear the voice of somebody in their 40s, love you, Dad, you know, that's great, Dad. Thanks for thinking of that, Dad. Uh, and it, it softens your heart and makes you know that your real identity is not what people introduce you from when your bio, mm. but your real identity in those who have watched you for all their lives and still love you. So I think the importance of family is critical. And then the issue of the 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 cloak, the books and the parchment, very key. I have also friendships all over the world. We are a team. Right from the beginning, RZI was to be a team. This is not about me. I'm 72 now. The day is going to come where I'll have to hand the baton completely. But I look at, over my shoulder and I see the Michael Ramsons, the Abdul Murrays, the Amy Ory Ewings, the Michelle Teppers, and uh, the list goes on and on from 15 different countries with different accents, well-trained in apologetics. You know, just today, somebody sent me an article from Christianity Today on the African-American community and uh, uh, what, how they see uh, apologetics. And the young woman who wrote that article moved me to tears when she referred to the books I'd written that meant so much to her. I was taken completely by surprise, and somebody sent that to me. Actually, my daughter sent it to me first. She said, Dad, I hope you are encouraged. Mm. Uh, because we've had our, uh, our enemies out there. We've had those who are taking a vow to destroy us. So we face the headwinds. But then just at the right time, God brings something like this and lets us know for those whose lives you're touching. So I think the, the values that govern your private life are the values that ultimately have to be shown in your public persona. To me, those issues are critical. And where I have faltered, I've asked the Lord to restore the years that the locusts have eaten, I have never lost sight of the truth of his gospel, that the fact that without that, there are no answers. I am sure that as in any leader's life, there have been those seasons that weren't good seasons. They were tough. Yep. And they yep. probably made you question. I know, I believe it was uh, Sam Chan said that, you know, we'll, we will only grow to the threshold of our pain. And in your in the world that you've been in, in a very public world, um, how have you kept going during your valleys? What's kept you going, Ravi, to go? You know what? This is this is worth this to me to keep moving forward. How have you kept going through that? 
Well, uh, the most important thing is the very preamble to your question, Mike. I think if a leader hasn't been through pain, they're really not yet fit to be a leader. Mm. Uh, if they've not gone through pain and they've not gone through agony, uh, my brother is uh, the chairman of the Department of Pain Management at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, one of the leading pain management clinics in the world. And when he was appointed pain management, uh, the director, I need to told me how honored he was. I said, Ramesh, just remember one thing. All of life is pain management. Wow. It's not, it's not just the patients that are going to come to you. All of life is pain management. So uh, it is God conquers not in spite of our pain. He conquers through it. The cross is the centerpiece of the gospel. Uh, I was asked by somebody who was asking me about Rwanda, a Rwandan young man stood up at the Young Leaders Conference for Lausanne in Jakarta. And he said, what do I say to my people? I said, the only thing I can say to you is for a wounded culture, the best answer is a wounded savior. There is no other way to approach this, that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed. The wounds of our Savior are very real and remind us that the world will ultimately, in one way or the other, or reality in one way or the other, will try to crucify you. And if you do not have the resurrection message and going beyond Calvary to the empty tomb, uh, you will uh, lose your heart and lose your faith in the process. So that's the first thing, our very message and our Savior. But number two, uh, when I've looked for mentors, I've looked for somebody who has suffered much but whose faith has remained unshaken. It's it's a reality that true saints uh, have gone through the windmill of being ground very small. And when their faith has emerged triumphant, uh, I just say to myself, why should I be spared? My Savior was not spared. So I would just say, if you're facing suffering, look at it as the instrument of what God is going to use to bring you to where he wants you to be. We will all like an anesthetic, but after the anesthetic is worn off, the pain is still there because the joint has still been cut and put back together. And so I say to leaders, uh, we all walk with a limp. We all have uh, the struggle of failure and uh, disappointment. And always treat men and women who come into your path as ones whom you are going to have to help through pain. It won't always be good news, but if you can help them walk through that valley, they will be the better for it, and we will all meet on the other side. For a believer, when they finish this race, and it is a race of pain, there's no doubt about that, on the side, and they close their eyes on this side of eternity, and they open their eyes to what's next, what do you believe as a follower of Christ that that experience of heaven is going to be like for a believer? You know, uh, Douglas Copeland, the Canadian writer, has written a book called Life After God about a handful of young men from Vancouver, British Columbia, who went their separate ways, got lost in the crowd of drugs and this and that. And then some of them later on in life were evaluating where they'd been and what they'd done. And he gives an illustration in his book. He didn't use it for the purpose that I'm using it. I'm surprised 
of a brilliant writer like that didn't uh, missed it. But here it is. He's walking through a botanical garden. Flower beds are magnificent. The aroma is great. And a group of women walking through call out to him and say, sir, is there somebody there? And he said, yes, I'm here. So they say, uh, could you take a picture of us? Uh, we are all blind, but we are here walking through these gardens. We need somebody to take a picture of us. So he took one of the cameras and he thought to himself, what on earth are they doing wanting a picture? That they are never going to see it. But he said he didn't ponder it. He just thought about it, had them lined up, took the picture, gave back the camera. They, I have no doubt, would have gone back home, had the pictures developed, as you can tell the story is dated, have the pictures developed and uh, show it to their family and friends. And they would then tell them what dress, who was wearing, what it looked like, what the flowers really looked like, what the colors were behind them. All of a sudden, they would meet up with those who could see to help them look at what they went to see but couldn't really see. Mm. I have a feeling when we enter heaven for the first time, we'll have somebody who will explain the real pictures to us. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. And the Wurtzen song, you know, but think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. That panoramic view, both in macrocosm and microcosm, that's what heaven will be for the first time we will see without a glass that was originally there darkly. Now the light has been shown on ultimate reality. I don't know another word to say, but wow. I remember getting off the call with Ravi and thinking, I, I don't know. He didn't have any of the questions in advance. And his ability to think, and his ability to process, and his ability to explain is beyond anybody else I know in the field today, especially in the world of apologetics. I know what he's done for my faith. I know what he's done for me being able to listen in and learn from him, how to articulate what I believe a little bit better, to know the Lord a little bit stronger, and to do it all with humility and kindness and gentleness and respect. That's one of my favorite things. If I was that smart, I think I'd be puffed up and I would be proud and I would be arrogant. But that's the last thing that Ravi is. He is a gentleman's gentleman, and he has been used of the Lord in so many great ways. I hope that inspired you because I sure know it inspired me. Thank you, Ravi. Thanks for challenging us, and thanks for pushing us to be the people that you created us to be. Well, we get to kick off 2019 with our first guest who's returning to the podcast, Mr. Chris Hogan from Ramsey Solutions. Chris has a brand new book out, and it is going to be premiering on the day our podcast releases. I hope that you will plan on joining in and you'll plan on listening in, finding out about Chris's new book and finding out about all the things he's got that will help us be the leaders that God created us to be in the area of our money. Well, thanks again for tuning in to Lynch with a Leader in 2018. And I can't wait for a great 2019 to spend with you. 
Have a great end of the year and have a blessed and happy new year. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com. 